0: For in. Sports oh, thank you all for tuning in to the 468th episode of Barbara Sports Up with me, uh, Daryl D Lane, as always, wherever you are. However, you're be listening, thank you for making me in this show part of your day, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, IRA, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via being recorded from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, per the new usual. Gonna have a great podcast for all you guys today. Going to have Bobby Manning on. He covers the Boston Celtics for Celtics blog. We had a great conversation. We talked about the passing of Bill Russell. Kind of the evolution of basketball, how like Jordan's Bulls would do against uh, the '98 Bulls would do against the '17 Warriors, Kobe, Shaq, Lakers. How certain players like Bird would fit into the modern NBA. So we really had a nice philosophical conversation at the start of the pod, and then we talked about the Celtics, Kevin Durant uh, potentially going to Boston, what that trade would look like. Uh, We also talked about the development of guys like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Robert Williams, and Grant Williams. Now, before we get to all that, I'm going to give my shameless plug. As always, first-time listener, thank you, but subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with your friends and family, whether it be via Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc., check on the description below, specifically if you use Spotify. I have everything timestamped. You can click on the timestamp, and we'll send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to. Folks, it's for your convenience. Follow me on Twitter at nightstraight underscore lane. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane, You will find it. I post two five-minute clips of this podcast right here as well as my syndicate show Outside the Shop, which I am debuting my top 20 quarterbacks in the NFL starting Monday. So check that out. I give a five, six-minute synopsis of every quarterback in the NFL. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. For some odd reason. If you don't like the pod, then fret not, worry not. Just don't say a thing. Not a damn thing. Not a peep. Because you know what your mama told you? Mama Lane taught me this. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And now it's time for my monologues that my good friend Kenny Sim loves so very much. So Ohio State's CJ Stroud voted QB1 in the 2023 NFL Draft over Bryce Young in an ESPN poll. So, right, as we move towards the draft, I have personally started to uh, delve into some of the NFL prospects. I've looked at Will Anderson Jr., Uh, And I've looked at a few of the quarterbacks, particularly Bryce Young, C.J. Shroud, and a guy who I think will be the first QB off the board, at least right now from what I have scouted and looked at in uh, my film evaluations, Will Levis out of Kentucky. Uh, And I want to say this, everybody's talking about Bryce Young, C.J. Shroud. Will Levis is better than both of them. Let's talk about it. Will Levis out of Kentucky, right? 237 pounds, 6'3", 23 years old. He's a bigger, stronger, faster man than both athletes Uh, in Bryce Young and CJ Shroud. He's strong, he can shrug off guys in the pocket, he can throw with bodies around him. Also, the size. He's a bigger man. I think he's going to be able to handle contact better at the NFL level. Can see over the line better than a Bryce Young, who I've noticed. He backpedals a lot when he gets into his drop back pass game. He's more pro-ready than both of them. He plays under center. He plays in a more pro-ready offense. 11 personnel. Two tight ends. Stuff like that. Uh, Also, his arm. It's insane. Uh, Powerful. Probably one of the top 10 to 8 arms in the NFL the moment he's a rookie. He can really spin the ball. The ball explodes out of his hands. He can also throw on the run a little bit, Has some scrambling, even though I want to see him improve on that a little bit more. But he's looking like a guy. He has all the elite traits. I think of him like a baby Josh Allen, a poor man's Josh Allen. That's how physically gifted this guy is. And also, an underrated part, which I really love and I think makes it me more sure about my evaluation in him from the games I've watched, he plays at Kentucky in the SEC. He's playing against the best teams in America with a Kentucky team who's not that talented, not the most talented team. He plays against a Georgia team that had, who had the greatest defense ever last year. And he held his own, and he made a lot of plays. I think they should have let him throw more. Where Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud are on the best team every Saturday, With the best wide receivers, and they're just lighting it up with five stars and four stars, Will Levis is not afforded that opportunity. He has a better arm than both of them. He's a better athlete. He's more pro style. He's bigger. He's thicker. He's stronger. All that sounds like, he's the better quarterback. And I know he's not getting the hype right now because Bryce Young at Alabama, CJ Stroud at Ohio State, they both will probably meet in the college football playoffs, particularly the college football championship game. And Will Levis will probably finish second or third in the sec east all right nobody cares but come draft time next year after the season's over in college football people will start talking about will levis so i'm letting everybody know right now you called it here first will Levis out of kentucky will be the guy who rises up everybody's board and he will be better than bryce young and cj shroud now we're gonna get to Bobby Manning, got him next at the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. with barbershop sports talk and we have a very special guest with us bobby manning uh celtics reporter for clns and celtics blog how you doing man i'm good man how are you i'm doing absolutely fantastic so my first question for you is this bill russell passes away uh they said peacefully in his sleep Last week, just from somebody who's from the Boston area, kind of what did Bill Russell kind of mean.
1: Well, Bill Russell put all those banners in the in the garden that everyone's always talking about him. And I th- I'd say you know writing about him this week it was a foundational piece in Celtics history. In many ways, made the franchise what it is today. Uh, you think of his civil rights accomplishments, made him one of the greatest americans ever period you know you think he's one of the best basketball players ever one of the best celtics players ever well he lived a life that i think was exemplary as really any american uh, battling racism uh, making strides off the court and activism one of my favorite stories about him is um going to mississippi in the 60s after medgar evers got assassinated who was uh activists who would, you know, work with the NAACP, uh, you know, after Brown versus Board, uh, tried to go to law school at University of Mississippi, even though he was facing all kinds of death threats and, you know, whatever else it was um, after uh, they integrated schools in the South. So he gets assassinated, and uh, Bill Russell went down and uh, kind of in defiance of, you know, the racists down there, put together these integrated basketball camps and, you know, brought people together after that assassination, which was a big deal back then. It's just all these stories. He was front row at uh, the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech. Um, And, you know, you just hear these stories of how strongly he stood as a personality against uh, white supremacy. And, you know, despite all the taunts and, Things that he dealt with on the court through college and all these other, um, you know, uh, locations that he played it during his career, he was a strong. Some people thought standoffish personality, but I think in many ways he was just really guarded, really strong against. It was a really threatening society for him to live and you know perform, in. and and uh, he did it at the highest level despite all that going on off the court uh, and. Maybe as high of a level as any athlete ever performed. 11 championships. He's a great track and field runner, and as well as high jumper. And, and you know, won a gold medal for the U.S. Uh, great college career. So you just read everything he achieved. Boycotts, uh, you know, consistent title runs, 10-0 in Game 7s. It's really one of the great sports lives and really one of the great lives, period. It's just, it was a really cool opportunity to kind of look back Especially, you know, what am I, 24 now? and I didn't get to see him play. I didn't get to see him coach. I really didn't get to see him out in public much at all. He didn't hear from him much as he was living down Seattle. So, to get this opportunity to go back and watch his old interviews, uh, see some of his old games on tape, and just read and listen to everybody talk about him, it, it was really cool, you know. I love history, love sports. When he put both of them together, like his life was able to do, you know? It's, it's really, really remarkable stuff. So I'm glad we all got that opportunity this week to kind of look back and appreciate the life that he lived.
0: Where do you think he ranks in terms of all-time Celtics? Because obviously it's probably either him or Bird for most people.
1: Well, it, if you're ranking, like I said, the whole life, the whole span of achievements, he's he's number one bar none. I mean, he set the standard for what their organization is. Is going to become in terms of not only stressing championships year in and year out as they still like to do to this day, but they uh, play their style, I think, to this day through different front offices and different coaches and all this uh, different changes in the organization over the years. It feels like defense has always been something that they stress at the highest level. You know, even last year's team uh, playing with pace. Uh, playing a team first brand of basketball. Those were all the things he kind of instituted and innovated in the game uh, Shot blocking all that different stuff that he was doing that no one really was before at that point. So I think it's pretty cool to see his uh, impact on the game and his you know, emphases in his own game still be things the teams uh, in Boston emphasize to this day. Uh, so Larry had a great great career, but You know, I'm sure Bill, if you asked him, would have been like, you know, he had three championships, I had 11 now. Was the league more competitive and were there more great teams during the 80s than during the 60s? Probably. So it's tough to compare errors, but Bill still had all those matchups with Will that he was able to take. Uh, Still had these highly, highly competitive final series against the Hawks and some other teams back then. So, uh, it's a tough call, but it probably... A lot of championships and all the different individual achievements that he had and some of these staggering stats. I think you probably got a lean bill just by a little bit there, but it's close. They're probably neck and neck at the top of Celtics history there for sure.
0: So I was uh listening to uh the Ryan Russolo podcast and he was talking about Bill Russell stories and I found it funny because he he mentioned one <laughs> when uh I guess ESPN like twenty years ago they were doing this list of like a the top 100 greatest American athletes ever uh, something to that effect and I think Bill Russell was 13th and they were trying to get him for an interview and Ryan was like uh, "He Bill was curious to see like who was ahead of him and then they're like yeah Michael Jordan and he's like oh well he got 6 championships so I got 11 <laughs> and then like but they named some other people, and then they had like Babe Ruth. Maybe was like, okay, I guess. And then they got to like Will Chamberlain. And he's like, huh? And then he just got yeah. really annoyed. And then he's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not helping you guys out. You think you guys got all the content you need? <laughs> I know
1: Will was the one that would have hit him personally because it's like I I've won two thirds of those games. Yeah, you know, I won pretty much every series except uh, the one with Philadelphia that Will ended up getting one of his few championships out of. And so. Wilt's, uh, if you look at Wilt's numbers, it's it's staggering stuff. Right? There's like a meme kind of of one of his crazy box scores that you know when people are putting up big numbers or whatever it is they're throwing that one out there. And there's a you got the hundred point game, you got uh, fifty point per game season. So if you're looking at numbers, Wilt dwarfs Bell. You know, Bill wasn't really a numbers guy, especially his biggest attribute was probably shot block. Shot blocking, and they didn't count blocks back then. So you look at Wilt's numbers, you look at Bill's. It looks like Wilt's a significantly better player. But when they went head to head, Bill had his number more often than not. So, hey, <laughs> they were close for sure. But yeah, if you're Bill and you battled there in those days, you're not looking at it from all oh, the league was weaker. Or, you know, Wilt had these better numbers. So I kind of understand that you win those battles, you won all of them. He had to do what it took to win those games, and yeah, you know, he has a certain level of pride and and uh, you know the appreciation for what he did in that spot. So he probably holds his own career in any as high as anyone's terms. You know, you can kind of understand that, but you know, any athlete at that level is going to think that they were the best of the best, accomplishing what they did. Jordan, uh, Wayne Gretzky, whoever it would be. Uh, And it's tough to compare, you know, especially across eras and definitely across sports. So, the lists are tough. lists are definitely tough. And that's probably a little low for Bill in terms of the greatest athletes ever. But, you know, you're you're really splitting hairs between the greatest ever at that point.
0: Do you think Bill Russell, even Wilton, like, Those players from the '60s get a little bit uh, left out and forgotten because a lot of times I feel like nationally, when everybody talks about like who's the greatest basketball player, who's the greatest teams ever, Uh, those '60 Celtics teams, Bill Russell, well, they kind of get left out of the conversation, and it kind of always deteriorates to oh, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant.
1: Yeah, because you think that the league's more competitive at this point, and it definitely is. You got 30 teams, you got great players across every roster, and. There's less of an opportunity to compete for a championship year in and year out in the average city, average team. So I, I understand why the guys from the older eras probably get left on the back burner, but that also leads to probably underrating them a little bit in terms of if you're going to weigh everything equally and you know try to appreciate each era for what it was. You know that was the elite of the elite of that time. So it, you got to try to. Weigh it somehow a little more equally than just saying, "Oh, it was plumbers and firemen, and you know whoever in the '60s." That's probably understating what they accomplished a little bit. But is it harder for LeBron now to win three rings than it was for Russell to win eleven? Probably, you know, just because of the level of competition across the board and how spread out it is, uh, just the equal access i think all athletes have to elite training and elite nutrition all those different kind of things like you just drop bill russell in this era probably wouldn't be nearly as great as he was you know just dropping him in a time machine here but if bill russell grows up in this era and does the training and does the nutrition all the different things that make this era better you would think that he'd be relatively close to that elite status that he was back then. Now the game has changed too. You know, you look at Tate from back then it's, it's like a different sport almost. I right, in terms of no three point line and the shots people were taking and just the style of the game. So that's what makes it so hard to compare errors, but it's really fun to think about, you know, Jordan versus Russell, uh Jordan versus LeBron, all these different guys who played in completely different eras. Um you know, makes for a fun debate, but it really is so hard to say, how would this guy have done this time? You know, who was better in this era versus that era? Because, listen, 11 rings, probably a little bit of a product of the competition back then, how few teams there were, how good the Celtics were and on top of all that. They had a great coach and ran out of that. So, you know, still a huge accomplishment, but is Jordan 6 relatively equal to that? I'd probably say so.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting. I've never been a fan of when people call uh, guys from the '60s and '50s plumbers because I'm like, especially, <laughs> especially when it's like either people in the media or fans, and I'm like, okay, like then what are you guys? Because they probably dust the floor with you guys and if they're so plumbers, Yeah, I'm know. always like, I don't understand that. Like that that part's always blown my mind. <laughs> I get
1: a, you know, I was talking to Bob Ryan last night too, and I don't really know where that perception comes from, but that'd be a fun question to ask because. I know if I was gonna think of like where that comes from, I think Tommy Heinsohn on the Celtics way back when, and other players too, like had jobs in the off season because you know people were making millions of dollars back then. So Tommy was selling insurance during the off season, uh, I believe, and you know other guys had different jobs that they had in the off season. Maybe there were some firemen, maybe there were some, uh, partners, but, you know, these were these are great players at the highest level now. When I look at like the average guy back then, wasn't you know it's not great, and everyone was shooting below forty percent. The shots some guys were taking were ridiculous. Like the level of basketball back then was definitively worse than it is now. I, like the game has just advanced so much beyond uh, the average player's abilities back then. But the elite guys, especially Russell, when we're you know we're talking about Russell here, the way you watch the tape, the way he'd stride up the floor in just a few steps. He had 7'4", I think, wingspan, uh, you know, nearly 7 feet. He he had elite physicality. So you think if he was developing skills along with that that fit the modern game, you know, who would he be? Like a Draymond Green? Would he be like a Rudy? This was kind of stuff I was kicking around with Bob last night in terms of like who you could compare him to. But he was really a force onto his own back then. Uh, so is he... The best in the NBA now, if you throw him into it, probably not. But would he still be among the elite defenders, the elite role guys? You know, passers among big men. There'd still be a way for him, I think, to be a really, really elite part of a really, really good team. Would he be the face of it? No. But you look at a guy like Draymond. Is he the face of the Warriors? No. But he's still going to have a pretty, pretty big role in that team's, uh, in that team's story when it's all said and done, winning four championships.
0: Or if you think of, like, Dwight Howard, peak Dwight Howard in Orlando, could he be that? Yeah, you know, and Dwight didn't win a ring. Maybe Bill
1: wouldn't ring, win a ring in this era. You know, maybe he would find a way to do that, beat the Lakers in '09. 9 But that, again, goes to show, you're Dwight in '09, 9 8 that time. You're one of the best centers in the game. And it's still not quite enough to win because you're running the Kobe, you're running the Celtics teams, you're running into those Cavs teams. Everywhere you look, there's great, great teams, and that's ten, fifteen years ago. Now, I feel like there's even more teams uh, in this t- in today's era. The Lakers missed the playoffs this year. Uh, in the East, you're talking about the Knicks, and that's lot a pretty good rosters. That even in a ten-team playoff window now in today's league, still couldn't make the playoffs. Period. Kings, you know, you has got some talent on that roster, elite stars, uh, but the competition level, the the Width of talent in the league now is just insane, and it's getting better every year, year out. Uh, these draft classes coming in—it's it's just insane how much talent there is in the basketball world now.
0: So actually, I have a question for you. Uh so last few weeks, people have been talking about like the seventeen warriors versus like. The 98 Bulls, 96 Bulls, the one Lakers versus the 17 Warriors. And I'll just lay out my thinking of it and I want to hear yours. I'm always like, you know, I think we can say players from past eras, especially the great players, could, you know, logically come in and be the same guy. If they have the same training, they understand, like, shooting threes, uh, efficiency, all of that. But I'm like, as teams, if like if you dropped the 98 Bulls on a court with the Warriors, I'm just like... I don't understand how anybody could say they would beat them. I'm like, they would get blown out by 40 points every single game.
1: Yeah, because of that three-point advantage. And, you know, some people don't like the three, but it's a pretty strong mathematical advantage. If you're able to shoot that at a high enough level, you're going you to have an advantage over a team that's going two by two. And, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about how it would level out and what could the Bill uh, Bulls rather have done to level the playing field with the Warriors at that point because like you said, the Warriors have just reached this higher level of basketball uh, strategy and skill that you know, not only has made them rise above this era, but you would have to think right, rise above past eras as well Great teams of those eras so every era I think is going to have an advantage on the last, on uh, the elite teams at the top and maybe even the teams that have fallen short in this era, like you think we're going to talk about the Warriors for years and years and years. These Cavs teams that were battling with the Warriors were elite teams. You know those Cavs teams could have gone back and beaten the Bulls. For all we know, uh, it, you know all things being equal. So it, it, that's what makes it so hard to compare because you do have to flatten some things out. You know, make some adjustments and consider what was available to those teams at that time, strategy wise, competition wise. And, uh, you know, just acknowledge the fact that the teams playing more recently have that edge, you know, and maybe get on the court and things break a certain way and Jordan's able to figure some stuff out and he's able to rise above. But for the most part, you're looking at all the three-point shooting, all the spacing, all the movement that these Warriors teams are able to achieve along with a great defense. And, you know, they're knocking off the best teams of this era. You know, so I think they can knock out the best teams of the past era as
0: well. Yeah, because I'm even like, I guess my thing is also I always get kind of tricked when people say it is. I'm just like, even, but yeah, of course, there's a mathematical advantage of shooting threes, but if you take that away, like the whole concept of just having to cover in space where everything was clogged, it's just it's easier to defend. It's not that Scottie Pippen, Ron Harper, Michael Jordan.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were talking the '60s, the '90s. You go back and watch, and I mean, I'm even watching like the 2008. 2009, 2010 finals. It is it's a kind of a slogging post-up mess of a game. You know, just bodies mashing in the middle of the floor, and teams really taking their time to set up their offense. Now it's flying up and down the floor. You know, early offense. You had that 10 seconds or less Suns that kind of set up a lot of what we're seeing now. It's it is accelerated pretty quickly. You think. From the 60s to the like 2008, 2009 ish time, you know, right into the last decade, basketball probably changed as much from like 2010 to now as it did from like the 60s to 2000. Like, there's a lot more similarities, I think, if you're watching like the Shaq Lakers and like the 60s, 70s basketball. I, if you're watching 2010 compared to this year, I think there's just as much change from those was two very different spans of time. Like what the big three Heat did and then what the Warriors did shortly after that and with small ball and shooting and spacing and all that different kind of stuff, it just completely changed the game in a very short amount of time. And now everyone's trying to effectively mimic what the Spurs, what the Heat, what the Warriors were able to accomplish uh, during that time.
0: Yeah, and even for me, I was watching like a week ago an uh, 07 uh, Western Conference semis Suns versus Spurs, and I- I'm just kind of like losing my mind because I'm watching Steve Nash every time they get into a pick-and-roll. Tim Duncan or Robert Ory, they're just dropping on Steve Nash. And instead of Steve Nash raising up to shoot, he's just driving into them. And I'm like, there's no way in the NBA now you would have a guard like Steve Nash in the pick-and-roll, and you would drop your big like that. And yeah, then and Steve Nash would d- penetrate towards him, he'd pull up, and he'd like go 8 for 10.
1: Yeah, and I'm thinking, like, if we went in the time machine and went back to, like, the Larry Baird Celtics, we could we could just drop in as head coach and be like, all right, we're going to shoot a lot more threes than everyone else. And you might be beating everybody because of that, if you master that. And it's just because, what was the reason not to do it back then? Teams just didn't like it, or coaches didn't like it. You know, Larry didn't like the idea of the three. It's kind of crazy to think that all you really have to do is multiply the point, like, by a point and a half per possession. Just do that little math equation and you have the significant, significant advantage on everybody. But it took so long for someone to take advantage of it just because of comfort or tradition or whatever it was back then. But if you're going back in time, you're going to tell those teams, let's shoot a lot more threes and we're going to get better at it and it's going to be our edge because no one else is doing it.
0: Or or even the concept of like hunting. Like Uh I've watched the series too and I've watched Steve Nash and Steve Nash is just like sitting in the corner, like doing nothing on defense. And I'm like, now, I mean, I'm like, I could only imagine Steph Curry watching this. Like, oh my God, I wish that could happen. Now they're bringing you up every play.
1: Yeah, and it, the bar is that much higher. And you got to give Curry credit for that. I mean, you had to deal with that the entire finals this summer and did a great job with it. Because if he didn't, it would have been devastating. You know, that's the game plan for teams. They're going after your weakest link and... More often than not, your weakest link's going to get played off the floor, and that could end your career if you're not able to play on the floor uh, defensively. So, the bar to get on the floor now is—it's just never been high. All of the different stuff you have to do. This specialist still, for sure, but you, your game's got to be really well rounded at this point to get on the floor. There aren't many bruisers or enforcers, or you know, there's some three-point specialists still. But again, if you're getting targeted, like you said it's it's going to be a very short stint for you, especially in the playoffs.
0: Yeah, correct. And it's like, even when you look at the Bulls, right? Those, those 90s Bulls, obviously Pippen, Harper, Jordan, they're great perimeter defenders. But now, like... You can just bring up the fourth guy who's an awful defender. Let's say Steve Curran. You're bringing him up, and then that kind of negates what Pippen and Jordan are doing. And now the kind of combat that. They're having to double. They're having to go over the screen, which is a lot more work. And then there's, like, all this space. So it just makes even being a good perimeter defender that, like, ten times harder. So just, like, adjusting with all that in the fly, like, it's just hard for you to believe you could just drop some of these teams in the playoff series. And they're just going to be able to adjust. Like, Phil Jackson's just going to be like... <laughs> hey, like I'm not gonna play Bill Wellington anymore because Bill Bill Wellington would not be able to play in a series against the Warriors. He's just not gonna be able to play.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of guys from those eras that wouldn't be in the league today. I mean, I'm reading the book about the '90s. Next, I could say that entire team, maybe, say for Patrick Ewing, would be in trouble just because you know you talk about the defensive liabilities. If you're an offensive liability in the league now, too, that can be just as devastating because teams won't guard you. You know, they'll let you stand in the corner. That was kind of the key to the Celtics defense this year. Was They put Rob on the least, uh, least versatile, least dangerous offensive player, whichever you want to call it. And he could just roam in the middle and protect the paint. And it was borderline revolutionary what they were able to do running that style. Because you know, most teams had one guy who was a relatively weak link offensively. And you were going to make that guy make you pay. And what you gained in run protection out of that was... Substantial, and they ended up having the number one defense because of it. So yeah, you can take advantage of guys who are weak on
0: both ends of the floor. It's even like if you think about the 08 Celtics, like I don't think Perkins plays. You just nope. like Perkins doesn't play, and Perkins was a big part of those things. But like you can't play Kendrick Perkins, and I'm like I think Rondo's a good enough basketball player by proxy. He still gets on the floor because he's just he's just to me he's just good enough. But I'm like. The ball's probably in Paul Pierce's hands, and Paul Pierce is dribbling the ball up at the top to keep most of the time.
1: Yeah, that's another change, too, in the game, is moving that ball in your best offensive player's hands and making them the playmaker. Those those pass-first point guards, those initiators, they're, they're gone. You know, Chris Paul and Ronda's probably done at this point in his career. And can't think of another guy beyond that. Like You have to be a threat at the point of attack, and they're going to do the best sentence on you
0: yeah that's completely true it just the game really has evolved where it's like you do see some guys like Dirk of Dirk played now Bird like some of these guys they'd be so much better but th- there's other guys who were just kind of like they were kind of perfect for their time because it's like if you can't defend and you provide or you either that or teams don't have to guard you it's like why are you on the court like, like teams aren't that desperate for an enforcer <laughs> like
1: yeah and by that same by that same token, it's it's like guys coming into the league now, it, the the skills that they have day one, very remarkable. You see what some of these rookies are able to do, across the board in their games. Scotty Barnes initiating, defending, you know, getting a shot off at a higher rate than people expected too. I mean, these are guys coming in at 19, 20 years old who are ready to go. Tatum, you know, nineteen years old was making an impact day one. Uh, so these, these guys know what they need to do from a very early age. They're doing it. I know big men are shooting, handling the ball, wings are defending at the highest level and you know, making their threes coming into the league. These drafts, people get really excited about the drafts now just because of how much deep level of talent there is coming in and you know, it's it's impacting the league on an earlier and earlier basis.
0: Yeah, and I also think about it, I think for some players, it was even harder for them to play. Like, imagine like Michael Jordan playing now, as good of an a- athlete as he was, where it's like the floor's not clogged. You're going to let him dribble it up at the top of the key. You're going to tell him, hey, we're going to screen to get like the worst offender on the court on you. Uh, people can't hand check you. You can go to the rim. Nobody's going to hard foul you. And since the court's so spread, it's harder for help to come. Like, you're going to be that much better. <laughs> like,. Yeah.
1: You could see
0: him averaging close to 40. Yeah. It's like, I I could just imagine telling him, like, listen, Michael, every time you attack the basket, nobody's going to put you on your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's going to put you on your butt. Yeah,
1: the physicality of it. They changed the game from a physicality standpoint, too, with the hand checking, with the foul rules, with the flagrants. You know, so they transformed it in that way, too. So that's another advantage that you bring up there. It's really, really significant for a guy like that who played through
0: bruises at the rim. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and then kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we going to talk a little bit about a, a potential KD trade to Boston. Kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of waste to bet on all your favorite sports, you can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right, folks. Bo- So, we're back with the Sports Talk, and we still have Bobby Manning with us. So, chances Kevin Durant ends up in Boston.
1: It's not looking great. Right now, the asking price in Brooklyn is so high that no teams can realistically even negotiate. You know, like, I'm a big advocate of the Celtics pursuing Durant, and... That's limited by how much you're going to give up. And right now, it seems like you're going to have to effectively give up your whole team to get him. And is Duran a guy who, with a few other pieces around him, is going to be able to lead to a championship? Very seen in teams with great guys at the top level struggle. And that's the Lakers. Like, you need depth now. You need a well rounded team that can uh, thrive in a bunch of different areas. And the Celtics have that right now. Number one defense, a offense that I think is going to get much better this year with Brogdon and some of these other additions. So, there isn't an urgency to wipe out your whole roster to add him. Now, some teams might have that. Does Toronto look at it and say we're far enough away where we need to take this risk? Might come to that. Phoenix, probably less so. Because, you know, they had the best team in the league last year. Bad series wiped out their championship chances, but they were two wins away a couple years ago. So, there isn't an urgency right now from Boston, from the rest of the league, to give up what the Nets are looking for and on the Nets end. You have to seriously think that they're keeping that price high to try to lure Durant back, lure Irving back for that one-year run. And That makes the most sense for them, right? Because even if you only have one good shot at championship here, if you're them, you got to take it rather than going back to a rebuild. They don't have their picks. They did that hard to trade So, yeah, it looks like that team's going to end up coming back. Unless Durant holds out, and that's still what we're missing, right? Why is Durant one out? Is it urgent enough for him that he's going to hold out? I'd be surprised, though.
0: What do you think is too much for the Celtics to give up?
1: I'd probably draw a line at Smart. I think if you give up Brown, Smart, and all your future picks, you're suddenly pretty thin at the point guard position. You are... Uh, better at that wing spot next to Tatum, but your defense, you lose that much to your structure defensively where you wouldn't be that elite, elite team on the defensive side of the ball. You wouldn't have the reliability of the point guard spot because you lose Brogdon to an injury, and he's certainly been injured throughout the last four or five years of his career at this point. You'd be left with Derek White and Peyton Pritchard in the backcourt effectively at that point. Like, it is a lot to give up out of your depth there Uh, to add one guy who, yeah, is definitely an upgrade on Brown, but is he enough of an upgrade where losing your depth is that much more of an upshot? It's it's a tough call, and that's probably where I would draw the line if you don't want to give up Smart. You want to give up White as that original package uh, had there. So, If push came to shove and it's two or three picks and it's Smart and it's Brown, I'd probably do it. But it's a tough call, and I'm definitely not giving up Rob. I'm, I'm a, I've become a huge Robert Williams guy. It looks like he's the ceiling raiser for that defense, uh, by all accounts. So that's my line, somewhere between Smart and Rob, I'd say.
0: Why do you think Rob? Rob it seems Rob's kind of untouchable for you. Why is that?
1: Oh, you saw him, him reach it in, in really his first season playing full time. He effectively became, before the injury, the defensive player of the year. I think he would have won defensive player of the year if he didn't get hurt. Uh, you know, you look at some of the splits, the on-offs. He was hurt. He was basically on one leg in the finals. And when he was on the floor, the Celtics outscored the Warriors in the finals by 30. In a series, they lost in six. So his impact, the the ceiling. You know, for this team, when he's on the floor, because of his room protection, because of his playmaking, his rebound, these different little ways he's able to control the flow of the game, he, he, I think the ceiling, like there's no ceiling on what he's going to be able to become. You know, injuries is probably what puts a cap on it, but when he's out there, the Celtics went on that run where they won, I think twenty out of 22 games at one point, uh, or 22 out of 25, I think, at their best, and that was with their full lineup attack, which was the best lineup in the NBA last year. And, you know, they were basically untouchable. They weren't just beating teams, they were destroying teams. So, Smart, is he the quarterback of their defense? Yes. But I think the real ceiling raiser for this defense is, I think at times historic defense last year, was Robert Williams.
0: So let's say the Celtics do trade Brown and Smart and multiple picks for KD. How good does that make Boston?
1: Oh, I think you're still looking at the number one defense in the league or close to it, and the offense would be pushing number one at that point. You think of the way Tatum and Durant could play off each other. You'd have some shooters there, and Horford and Brogdon. Uh, You maybe be able to get back like a players from Brooklyn in a deal like that possibly if you send back Grant but you know Grant's another good shooter in his own right so it would be a very dynamic flexible team and that's what has me so captivated by the idea of doing it like these two near seven footers and Tatum and Durant on the wings who are great defenders next to Rob as this elite elite front protector. Horford is a backup center which is probably the highest level backup center you can imagine. And then a backcourt that's pretty dynamic and defensively capable itself between Brogdon and White. Ah, oh, man, like it might only get you one or two shots at the title given Durant's age. Maybe three. Like who knows how long he's still going to be at that elite elite level. But the value of one, like you know, we still talk about two thousand eight here in Boston. If you could get one title with that core, I think it's worth it because the team you have right now, they're they're great, right? They're generally I think title favorites right up there with the Bucks and the Warriors right now but are you a slam dunk not quite you might just make the finals and fall short again you might just fall short in the East finals if you're doing that for you know, five to ten years here you're going to have a really fun run which I think is why Celtics fans don't want to see this trade happen but do you get a championship not certain yet you know, they were very good last year and they fell just short but at the same time you could say Smart was banged up you could say Rob was hurt so people want to see, like, a full, healthy run from this group. And I understand that. This is not an easy call either way. I'm pro Durant, but I don't knock anybody who's anti the trade idea because it is, it is a really tough call. And, you know, we haven't really even talked about Brown and just the strides he could continue to make as a player here. I mean, he's gotten better every year of his career. He's already borderline All-NBA. I mean, some people can make the case that he's right up there with Tatum in terms of skill set, even though Tatum's kind of taken that leap ahead of him here. So... I, I can't knock anyone either way. It's it's a fascinating conversation. We certainly can have an FFM here, but I think the Celtics are ultimately going to stand pat on this one. If we're talking all your future picks and Smart and Brown, and who knows, maybe they ask for Grant and Rob on top of that. It's just too much.
0: Yeah, well, I'd agree with you. I think if they're asking for Smart, Brown, Grant, and Rob, I think that's yeah. too much. That's not worth it. <laughs> No, no way. I, I think that's a hang up. I think that's what that is. Uh, how much, the let's just operate on their assumption it's Brown, smart, and multiple picks. How much better with Durant coming back does that make the Celtics as opposed to the Celtics team we just saw make the NBA Finals and lose to the Warriors in six? Brown, smart,
1: multiple picks, how much better are they? Yes. You're probably, I think, uh, rung above everybody else, right? So right now you're in the mix with the Bucks and the Warriors and, you know, some of these other great teams. With that team, if Durant's at his best, right, we're talking 30 point per game, 7 rebound per game, 6 assists per game Durant, uh, not only are you a rung above everybody else, but the reason I love that idea is because what was the Celtics' fatal flaw last year? Ball handling, offensive stagnancy, turnovers, those stretches where they just couldn't buy a basket in the finals. And even the East finals against the Heat, you saw this. I think with Durant at the point of attack, you don't see that anymore. He can get a shot off in the mid-range. He can pass a little bit. And, you know, he can even play off Tatum, you know, given Tatum strats as a playmaker here. And you basically have this two-man game that I think would effectively be unstoppable. So you're talking number one, if not number two, defense in the league. I mean offense in the league, rather it'd be an unstoppable group, I think, depending on how it shakes out around them. And, you know, you you could certainly try to add some guys too, but the tricky part is we're kind of past free agency, right? So I'm not sure how much you can add to that group uh, beyond what they have right now, you know, maybe at the deadline or whatever it would be. But uh, you, I think, solve a lot of the offensive issues with this team, which, you know, even given the Brogdon addition, I think that's still going to be a question this year. Who's ultimately their playmaker, can they protect the ball? Can they get a basket when they really need one? Uh, Tatum, I thought, struggled immensely with that in the finals. Smart had, a, I thought, awful finals uh, for the most part. So that's still a question for this team, even though they look like they're every bit the title contender anyone else is. Every team has their big flaw right now, and this team's is still their offense.
0: Do you think also part of it, why I think the Celtics do really need to consider this is, I think there is an opinion out there that they don't beat Milwaukee if Middleton's healthy. So, I think if everybody's assuming everybody comes back and Middleton's healthy, uh, the Bucks are probably the better team. So, you need something yeah. else to kind of shake up that scenario, that equation. Yeah,
1: and you know, Giannis just had this nice full off season. He's coming in fresh and you know, you're, you're going to have Joe Ingles come in there at some point, so they improved their roster too. They made a great first round selection too with Marjan Bochan, uh, who had a great summer league. I thought he was enormously, uh, you know, encouraging, showing what he did out there. So they're better. I think the Heat are probably a little worse, uh, but you know, you still have these array of contenders in the East. The Cavaliers, I think, are going to make a big leap this year. Uh, you have the Nets possibly back, although I'm not super high on them if they're running this back. So yeah, I mean Milwaukee's the team you look at and say, they're probably a slight favorite in the East right now, you know, so if do you have to make a trade to bridge that gap? Is it big enough where you have to do this Durant Deal? No. But they probably have a slight edge on paper right now. Now injuries and all that other stuff happens. I think there's probably a world where the Celtics can beat the Bucks with Middleton in that series, you know. Rob's healthy in that series, maybe that's the equalizer too. Because remember, Rob didn't play for much of that series as well. So you always toss around what-ifs with injuries. Bucks probably have the edge in that series with Middleton. But who knows? I don't think the gap's massive enough where you have to make some emergency changes on the Celtics. You play it out. You battle as best as you can. And if you fall a little bit short, then that's just how it shook out.
0: Do you think it's an issue that Jalen Brown always seems to be in all these trade rumors?
1: A little bit. I also think the bigger issue is ultimately there always comes a time in NBA history where two stars are playing together. One definitively has this team, this city in his pocket, like Tatum does at this point, and Brown, a very confident guy, a guy who, speaking with him, covering him for two years now, is always sure to you know build up his own skill set, his own you know personality and role in all this. I think naturally at a certain point a guy like that looks at it and says could I run my own team could I have my own situation especially with his off-the-court pursuits uh social justice and all these different things his brand clothing all these different things that he wants to accomplish does he look at it eventually and say another city might be able to suit what I'm looking for here now to be fair to him I think he's grown enormously connected with the Boston area he has a uh, education program that he's done in partnership with MIT and some of the other local colleges. Uh, he has opened a store selling his clothing brand in Boston as well and I think he's grown pretty connected with the Boston community. Uh, he was obviously a mentor in the of Terrence Clark who passed away last year as well so I'm not saying that he can't be impactful in Boston because he has been but I think a guy you know from Atlanta you know, who has different pursuits off the court Maybe does look at it in a couple of years and say, can I have my own team? Can I have my own situation and thrive in that and, you know, have my own brand and all these different things that are important to guys beyond basketball at this point. So I think it's a worthy concern. Am I, am I terrified he's going to be gone in a couple of years? No, just because of the fact that the Celtics can pay him over $200 million at that point. And other teams can probably pay himself of two hundred million. The the money difference there is significant enough that maybe you get one more contract out of him. But it's something to keep an eye on. It's only two years away, so your window is limitless here. He'll be an unrestricted free agent in two years, and he's going to test that market and see what's out there, and you know, give himself every opportunity to have the best career, the best life possible for him. You know, I don't think there's any beef between the Tatum and Brown. You know, I think they've actually grown immensely in terms of being able to play off each other too. But it's just something to keep an eye on. And I think it ultimately is something that he could look elsewhere when the time comes, depending on how things are going here. But right now, everything's good, and I don't think there's any urgency at all to move him or be proactive on that. When it comes to Durant and Brown in this conversation, the only thing I'm concerned about is. What's going to be the best possible team to win a championship right now? And at this point in Brown and Durant's careers, Durant is still that much better of a player that if you can get him for the right player ice, you're that much closer to a championship. All the stuff about Brown leaving in his future, I think, is secondary.
0: Do, And this is actually interesting, I think. What do you think the next step for Jalen Brown is? Oh, it's all about the ball handling. All about him being
1: able to... Cape control of the ball. And it's amazing what he does in spite of really struggling as a dribbler, right? You know, 20-plus points per game, incredible efficiency. I think at one point in the playoffs, he was close to 70% of the rim. Uh, so an incredible finisher, one of the best fast-break players in this league. Uh, and defense, you know, I think at one point, and this is something I talked to May about last year, there was a time where when Brown was guarding guys one-on-one and he had that sole assignment he was a much better defender than now where he's switching and doing a lot of this movement defensively. I think that was a tougher transition under a new coach for him. So getting better at that defensive system, I think is a place where he can really improve. And I think he did into the playoffs. He was great in that Brooklyn series defensively. Uh, but, you know, I think he can have a better overall season on that end of the floor. But the number one thing, of course, is getting that dribbling down. He has really always struggled with that. I think it's kind of a sore spot for him too. you know, he Try to write a couple stories about his ball handling last year, and he really wasn't all for it. And you know, I think it's probably that one big hole in his game that would prevent him from becoming as good as anyone in the game right now. So, uh, facilitating, playmaking, handling, all those different things for him are definitely the next step. Is that just kind of you know everybody has their flaw? Is that just his flaw? He's going to be a great shooter, a great scorer, good defender, and that dribbling is just sort of his weak point. That might be ultimately the story of his career, but. Uh, I, th- I still think there's some room for growth that he can achieve that because he kind of took a step back, especially in, uh, the later portion of the season, early portion of the playoffs. Day like that hand that was a big, big problem for him.
0: What do you think the next step for Tatum is?
1: Oh, consistency. You know, he went through big ups, big downs during the year, and I, E-May would say this too. You know, like at times he was that great, great passer, great general for the offense. I think his passing took enormous strides last year. Uh, like he became an incredible passer, and you know, as disappointing as his finals were, he averaged over seven assists per game, which is a big, big number for him. So turnovers, cutting those down, some of the lapses in decision making, finishing around the rim, though, big one for him. Uh, you know, I think I talked to him at his camp last week. That's one of his priorities this offseason: finishing off the two feet, finishing stronger, dunking over guys like. He has the strength. He has the burst to do that. You know, you remember his rookie year dunking over LeBron. We didn't really see finishes like that from him through the playoffs. Those rim protectors really bothered him, whether it was Green or Bam or Giannis. So he's got to be a more commanding presence at the paint. That'll help his uh, playmaking. That'll help him when he's not shooting as well, because I think his shooting went through some ups and downs during the year. And yeah, he's strong. You know, he doesn't have to avoid contact. And then he can finish through guys. If he can do that, you're talking, I think, 30 points per game this year with his shooting, with his ability to score from everywhere. That's the upside of his offense. Like, he can kind of look at him and Durant's career trajectory at this point. If you compare Tatum's 24-year-old stats to Durant's 24-year-old stats, pretty similar. So I think, is he going to be Durant? No, not necessarily. but. He already rebounds, he already defends, he already passes at a high enough level where you're saying this could be the more well-rounded player. Not the better scorer than Durant uh, career-wise, but the amount of stuff Tatum's able to bring to the table right now is just spectacular. And He ultimately was a top 5-10 player last year in spite of his ups and downs because of all those things he brings to the table.
0: What do you think the next step for Robert Williams is?
1: A lot of its offense. I, I talked to his trainer um, during the playoff run, but he was recovering from the injury there. You know, Rob's. I think offensively a pretty passive guy. You know, I don't think he wants to touch the ball a lot. There was this crazy graph too um, on Twitter that showed like percentage of touches uh, on a team versus the uh, how quick that touch is. and the ball basically flies in and out of his hands. And some of that's good. I think he makes really good quick decisions when he gets the ball. Great passes. Uh, but he doesn't have the ball much, period. Uh, so you know he's he's got to I think be able to do more with the ball if he gets it. His post game's kind of non-existent right now. If he gets a touch of the paint, he's going to be passing it right out. Uh, his putback ability's pretty good right now, and his dunking certainly makes him a very efficient player around the rim, especially on alley oops. But can he round it out more? Can he become a good dribble handoff facilitator in the high post? Can he run some offense for you in the high post area? He knock down a shot if he needs to. Like him being more of an overall threat offensively, I think will help him. But what he does right now is still really helpful, and it, you know it helps to have an unselfish guy who doesn't need the ball a lot to succeed. And right now, that's who he is. He can, I think, make some minor improvements beyond that. But the big thing is being available, right? He seems to always be injured, always be missing time. Did a better job with that last year, played bigger minutes, but with Horford getting that much older, them really not having a backup center since they traded Daniel Tice now. You know, they like Luke Cornet, but Rob's gonna have to play a lot next year. He's gotta be available and I think he's gonna make himself a little bit more of a threat offensively.
0: What do you think the next step for Grant Williams is?
1: Not a lot. I think, you know, he really found his role last year. Shooting forty one percent and three defending at a high level. I mean, this guy was defending Kevin Durant and Giannis in the playoffs at a capable level, which was incredible. Uh, so there's not a lot that I think he needs to add on to that. Attacking closeouts, and when guys really try to take the three away from them, is still an area he can improve, as well as his own playmaking out of those spots. Sometimes I think he tried to do a little bit too much with the ball when he would run off the three-point line. And that kind of played into a playoff series against the Warriors where he was basically a non-factor. So can he do a little bit more with the ball off the dribble when he gets run off the three-point line? It's a small thing, but I think it would have some big results from him, rebounding probably going to be important for him going forward as well as playing the post a little bit more next year, I think. Last year he became more of a perimeter player on both ends of the floor. On this team where, like I said, you're missing that backup center, he might have to play the post, might have to rebound, might have to defend inside a little bit more than he did last year.
0: What do you think the next step for Ime Udoka is?
1: Oh, good question. I thought he had a tremendous rookie year. Probably managing the minutes, probably finding a way to win and succeed and not be going full gas pedal all year. And they kind of had to because they had that slow start last year, right? So this year I think finding a way to, not coast, but manage the season a little bit more. Where can you sneak a night off for Tatum? Where can you sneak a, a night off for Brown? Uh, Horford certainly finding different matchups, being able to play smaller. I think he has the pieces to do that now, having a little bit more flexibility as a team, going deeper. And, you know, it's not as much of a big deal now because I think they're more of a veteran team. But eventually you want to see, you know, how can he become more of a uh, developmental coach? Maybe that's not who he is. This isn't a team that needs a lot of development. But under him in the first year, you really didn't see strides from Aaron e. Smith really didn't see strides from Peyton Critchard, and that might just be on them as players. Maybe they're not the best prospects in the world. Uh, but if you're going into the future and you're email and you're looking for more things to accomplish beyond what he has and he accomplished a lot year one, I think it's going to be finding ways to integrate some of the younger players, finding a way to rest some of the veterans at times, and still win. And that's going to be something he has to manage after a long, long playoff run last year.
0: Bobby, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it.
1: Hey, appreciate you, man. Good chatting
0: with you, and uh, good luck with the show here. Yeah. And once again, I want to thank Bobby for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode, the 468th episode of Barbershop Sports
1: Talk.